From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Dr. John Dempsey, a man with over 40 years of greenkeeping experience, most recently as a superintendent at the Royal Keurig in Ireland. John's education on and off the course included a degree from Myerscoe College and the University of the West of England in Bristol, where he continues to publish to this day on phosphites and plant defense activation. Speaking of plant defense activation and phosphites, it's important to know how much phosphite you are delivering and trust your distributor to provide the highest quality and value with research that supports their claims. When it comes to research-backed products, the plant food company puts their money where their mouth is and supports research that often includes their own phosphites. Don't rely on just a sales pitch. Ask for the data, and then you will see the plant food difference. Check them out at plantfoodco.com. John, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thanks for taking the time to join me. We did this once before, unbeknownst to most people other than you and me, but it was during 2020 when hardly I can remember anything from that far back. So really appreciate being able to redo this with you. And boy, I'm glad because you've been busy publishing and starting a research company that I'd like you to talk a little bit about. But I want to just go back. You know, everybody knows you. You're very popular in social circles that I travel. And I was pleased to be in and among those pictures that you posted recently uh, in, in social media. How is it you served for many years, two decades, maybe three, at the Royal Keurig and then wanted to get a Ph.D.? Well, it's a long story, I suppose. Um, goes back to the, the 1970s. I was always interested in education and that, but I actually left school very early. I think it was about 15. I had just a minimal qualification because uh, I wanted to be a hippie <laughs> <laughs> back in the early 70s. And I, you know, so I went off to London with a friend of mine and we, we had a year there just messing around. It was a great experience. Then I came back to Ireland and I got a job. You know, I had to, I met Mary, we got married fairly young. So I had to, you know, I had to work, we had to buy a house, we had to look after the kids. So it wasn't until in the early 80s, actually, how I got into greenkeeping was it was a depression here in Ireland. And up to that time, I was working in various factories and stores and things. And then there was no jobs going. So my father-in-law was a greenkeeper in the in the Royal Curra, going back to the early 60s. Yeah. So he got me the job on the golf course. And, you know, I was telling this to a presentation in Dublin a couple of years back. And Dubliners are very witty at times, I have to say. <laughs> at times. <laughs> at at times. times, yes. <laughs> Not all Other the time. times, they can be obnoxious. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we won't go with the percentages there now. But <laughs> what I was saying, you know, how, how my father got me the job. So he piped up from the audience. Oh, he says, so, you know, you went down there to the curra. You took the man's daughter and then you took his bleeding job. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I, I got into greenkeeping. I, I actually, at a late enough age, I was mid-twenties, I suppose, really. And I have to say, you know, the Royal Curra is on the place called the Curra Plains. A very interesting place. It's an open grassland, grazed by sheep continuously since Neolithic times. So never been cultivated or farmed. So it's a very unique flora and fauna there. Also, 
as I said, the sheep were grazing there continuously and also on the golf course. So my first job on the golf course was, you know, sheep, they, you know, do you remember those old cowboy films where the, the ranchers would come in and say, <laughs> we hate these sheep farmers coming in because they're grazing the grass down to the ground and there's nothing for the cattle. So I know exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the sheep would graze the golf course down to almost fairway height the whole way. Hmm. You know, and you didn't even have to set their teeth to that height. They just did it. <laughs> <laughs> but the only thing is, of course, that all this grazing and eating of grass produced a lot of organic matter from the yes. rear end, right? Yes, I was going to say, they yeah. take, but they give too. Exactly. So that was my first job on a golf course. I had to go around with a shovel and I had to clean off this organic oh, matter. You know, you could get a gig at Whistling Straits now because <laughs> the Straits course has a bunch of sheep running around it. I bet you they could get you a shovel that you could fit on the end of and, and work out there with the folks at Whistling Straits. No, thanks. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, that was my first job. And some might say I've been shoveling shit ever since. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's how I got into greenkeeping. And then around 1990, they sent me off to the Botanic Gardens in Dublin. And I did, you know, various basic greenkeeping courses, which were great. I found an interest there then in the in sort of the education and academic side. And, you know, the Botanic Garden was a great place to to study, you know, a beautiful oh. setting in the middle of Dublin. But, uh, but I always wanted to go on and do further education. But, uh, you know, the way things, you know, you're trying to support the family and that. So it wasn't until the um, 2000s, right, that things began to change and this education became available via online delivery. And right. I was at a trade show, I think it was in uh, Harrogate, BTME, Yep. And uh, got talking to chaps from Myerscoe College. And that, that's how I started. I started doing what's called a foundation degree, which then actually led on to a full first class honours degree. Mm -hmm. Mostly all through online work, through assignments, mm -hmm. different modules. And, you know, it was very interesting, I found it. You know, and that was a late enough age starting into that. But the final year of that degree course, you know, we had to carry out an, um, a research assignment for the full year. And I did mine uh, looking at phosphate. Surprise, uh -huh. surprise. Uh, yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, looking at phosphate, how it's uh, affected mycodochium in mm -hmm. creeping bent grass. Mm -hmm. And I was, I found this fascinating. And, and you know, the, by this time, the kids had grown up. So mm -hmm. I actually had time to put aside for this, you know. That's right, because Mary's not going to have you hanging around, hanging about the house like a bum. <laughs> well, she'd have a list of work for me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, speaking of that, a friend of mine, um, he was in a very high position in the Irish Army, very high. He couldn't go any higher, actually. But he was telling me, you know, obviously he, he was over the whole defense forces and great at giving orders and that. But on the day he retired, he was telling me, <laughs> His wife, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, Grant, yeah. I have a list here, she says, for you to look after. So that's all right. She went to work. She came back. Well, uh, I won't say his name, but how did you go on with that list? Oh, he says, I approved it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, moving back on to what we were talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. So now, okay, so listen, just so everybody can keep pace, you <laughs> finished your pre-PhD work and yeah. got interested in phosphites. That's right. As part of my the degree, you know, I needed a subject to work on. And this was the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005. And, you know, obviously, mycodochium is a major problem here in Ireland and the UK. It's the major problem. Now, at the time, we had plenty of fungicides, lipodione, chlorothalonil. They were all fully available. 
But at that time, then there was rumblings, you know, that these are going to be withdrawn, they're going to be legislation to limit them. So we started looking around for different ways to control disease. And uh, agronomist we had coming into the Royal Curragh, Dr. Michael Fox here in Ireland, said to me, John, you know, we should try using phosphate through the winter, autumn, winter. So I should say fall, sorry, Frank. Yes, that's right. And he says, you know, it will stimulate phytoalexins, he says. Oh, that's very interesting, said I. I hadn't a clue what he was talking about at the time, you know. <laughs> but uh, so I needed a project to work on, and that's caught my interest. And I started looking into it. And obviously, there was no research to support the fact that phosphate at that time would have any effect on microdochium. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, phosphate wasn't used over here in Ireland and the UK at all. Obviously, in the States, it's been used since, you know, the 1980s, very effective against uh, pythium and that. And, you know, phytophthora in other plant systems, mm-hmm. omicite uh, pathogens. Now, I have to mention phytophthora because that was the causal agent of the Irish potato famine, of course. That's, of course, right. That's why we got all your brothers and sisters here. Uh, That's right, yes. Back in the day of the Irish potato famine, for sure. Well, you should have been growing things other than potatoes, is I guess what I'd say, right? Oh, don't start now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a rule, actually, uh, probably not aware of it, but... For Irish plant pathologists, they always have to mention the Irish potato famine in a talk. <laughs> That's the rule. And Professor uh, Gary Foster told me that over in Bristol. So, yeah. Excellent. But anyway. <laughs> so you're, carry, you're carrying the torch. Yeah. So, so here's the thing I'll clarify for you, right? It's possible that phosphites were used in other parts of agriculture in the 80s. But yes. the phosphites really came about on the heels of the... Bentgrass decline work that uh, Leon Lucas, L.T. Lucas, did at NC State when he originally stumbled on the Aliette 4 mm. uh, combination, right? Aliette was considered at the time as an American greenkeeper, we called it an elicitor, yes, right? That yes. was the best we could say about it. There was really not much. There's a little bit about Pythium, but there were so many other things for Pythium. It was a second thought. And then 4, of course, Mancozeb had the pigment in it that when they finally researched the whole thing and Leon Lucas ultimately patented the idea of combining uh, these compounds, we figured out what the copper-based pigments could do for us, right? Also as somewhat plant defense activators. Now, after that, of course, Vargas, at least as far as I could tell, was one of the first to start to say here, hey, you don't need this Aliette. You can use these inexpensive phosphates. Now, that would have been the late 90s, 2000s. Yes, yes. When are you talking about this rarely being used in Ireland? It only started being used and recommended in Ireland and the UK from about 2004. It was being recommended just for microdochium because we don't really get pythium problems over here because of the weather. You know, we don't get the conditions. Right. And of course, speaking of those guys before, Joshua Cook and Peter Lanshut in Penn State, they also did some work with phosphites and pythium as well. Right. You know, that was probably what really tipped it, that we finally had conclusive data that the phosphites worked. I think Jack Fry did some at Kansas State. So there's been a lot of that. But you and I know between you and Clint Maddox at Oregon State University, Prior to you guys, nobody was playing around with phosphites. Well, first for other diseases, never mind winter diseases like microdochium. 
That's right, yeah. My PhD started in 2010, and that's when it really got into researching the phosphide and microdopium. And we did field trials back then, up to 2014, and we got a good 50% reduction in microdopium in three different species through that period. And we published that, published the first two years in 2012, actually. Actually, you go back to the uh, degree program, uh, the research I did for that, some good results, myself and Dr. Andy Owen. And we got a, an invite to present the findings at the European Turfgrass Society Conference mm-hmm. in 2010. That was a bit nerve-wracking for me because that was yeah. my first ever presentation, you know, yeah, and yeah. two or three hundred people there. A lot of them people whose work I admired, you know, uh, what this Tom Shang was there and yes. John Kaminsky was there as well. People who I used to admire. Well, it's, no, I say used, I still admire them. Wait, wait, I thought you said people you admired. How did I, Kaminsky get on that list? Tom only, Shang and Kaminsky? You'd never hear I, those two people measured in the same voice. I only should I had to set you up there, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's chat about that for a second. A lot of what I want to cover with you has to do with the phosphites and plant defense activation stuff. Mm. Matter of fact, the two papers you've published just in, in 2022, I, I want to spend time on. But before I do, I'd like to talk a little bit about you being a greenkeeper, studying for your PhD, now about to present and rub elbows with the people you've been reading about and admired their work. What was that like? That was unreal. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, unreal. you know, because one minute I was working away as a greenkeeper, shoveling the organic matter. (laughs) 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 And the next I ended up in France and all these people there. And it was a great experience, no doubt about it. As I say, nerve wracking, but I didn't mind that too much. But, you know, to meet all these people, that's really opened up what was available there, you know, and a whole new world, in fact. That's right. So listen, I want to wrap up this first part by just letting us know when you knew it was time to not be at the Royal Kurg anymore and strike out on your own with your PhD and your newfound scientific intellect that, you know, you gain from hours and hours of reading (laughs) mindless research, right? Well, I knew the time was to leave the Royal Kurg when they told me that they they were making me redundant. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't need a PhD to figure that out? No. The last few years before I left uh, Royal Cora, you know, I was still doing research. I was doing a lot of presenting. Was it 2019? The Royal Curry was in, let's say they were short on money. They had to get in advisors on, you know, HR, human resources, and they decided they needed to make cutbacks. So they had to get rid of the highest paid person, which happened to be me, which <laughs> worked right. out fine for me financially. You know, it's great. Uh-huh. I mean, at that time I was 63 and I would have retired within 18 months anyway. Ah. So that worked out a bit a bit of a, an own goal for them really because, you know, I would have retired and they wouldn't have to pay me anything. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so they scooted you out the door. They, they threw some money at you. Yeah. And then you're looking at Mary. She's got the list and you're ready to approve it. <laughs> that was it, yes. But uh, I did have a list because that particular time when I finished, our youngest daughter was getting married that summer. So I had a big list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great because that year, 2019, you know, we went into Sweden. We went Mm -hmm. into the Czech Republic doing all these talks. We're in the U.S. It was great. Well, you certainly live in a place where annual bluegrass, microdochium patch is not a problem going away anytime soon. 
And no. much like Clint was doing at Oregon State, John, there's lots of ways that each of these countries and each of these climates with these different collection of grasses are going to have to manage this disease even beyond phosphites. I mean, we've seen the effect of rolling, right? Yep. You've got Tom Cook and the guys at Oregon have looked at iron and sulfur. Yep. But yep. I will say you picked a good compound in a good location, right? Europe is very restricted with the availability of compounds for this. Very much so. With a disease that probably in your country, you could get it literally 12 months a year, couldn't you? You would see it 12 months of the year. And the only reason it's not a problem through the summer months is that, you know, the grasses are growing and they're able to produce the defenses and outgrow the infection rate. Okay. But from September right through to April, you know, our grasses start slowing down. They may almost become dormant. And this is when microdochium is most damaging to them because they can't produce the compounds for defense. Mm -hmm. uh, they can't recover. So as you say, it's a year-round problem. Yeah. So listen, let's take a break. I'm with Dr. John Dempsey. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Applying phosphites requires the same precision that any chemical application deserves. And precision is not determined by the color of the metal, especially if using GPS-guided spraying systems. Frost Technology specializes in spray technology, so they are your application experts, regardless of the color of the metal. Learn more about the exciting GPS technology at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Dr. John Dempsey, and we are about to do a deep dive for those of you that are regular listeners to the podcast. In, in every episode, we uh, do a little deeper dive on some of these topics, mostly because I'm a geek and I read these research articles and I've got a million questions. And it's such a joy and honor to have a scholar like you, John, to talk about this with. Let's start with this concept of plant defense activation, right? You intimated it, you alluded to it uh, in the previous segment where you said, you know, plants aren't actively growing, they can't produce these compounds. Let me set the stage a little bit. As far as I understand, plant defenses are, are grouped into, you, you have to have two functions if you're plant defense mechanisms. Number one, you have to identify you're under attack. Now that could be abiotic or, or biotic. And then you have to be able to respond in kind to either localize that infection or adapt to that stress. So, John, you've been on this a long time. You must be absolutely fascinated by this plant response and hopeful that without pesticides, we might be able to help plants defend themselves. Yep. Well, it's absolutely really complex and fascinating subject indeed. And, you know, I remember being over in Bristol in the university and one of the professors there picked up one of his books in the in the library. And it's all about defense activation and interactions and that. And I actually thought it was written in Welsh or something. But, you know, as you say, firstly, it has to happen, of course, is the plant has to know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. With biotic stress, this is where elicitation comes in, either fragments of the uh, invading pathogen or, or damaged parts of the plant itself will be recognized and this will cause the first response. And, you know, the first response is there to sort of contain the problem, the pathogen entering the plant, either by stealth through the, you know, through the stomata or physically breaking through, as in with anthracnose, through the outer layer. The whole idea is to contain and slow down this problem. And, you know, this involves things like 
almost instant production of things like hydrogen peroxide at the site of infection. Mm-hmm. And this leads to, you know, programmed cell death. So the area where the infection is occurring, the cells surrounding that site will actually commit suicide, you could say, and die mm-hmm. in order to stop the spread. So obviously it's not a, a straight line defense while, while that's go- going on. There's signaling compounds being produced and traveling mm-hmm. around. And areas within the infection site then start producing phenolic-based compounds such as, you know, phytoalaxins, as I mentioned earlier, these antimicrobial compounds. Other things that occur at the same time that would be increased lignification of the cell walls in the area as well to strengthen the cells to stop the pathogen breaking through. So what's going on then is salicylic acid comes into play and this is either produced and transported through the plant or something signals for its production in uninfected mm-hmm. parts of the plant. Mm-hmm. And this leads then to a, a generation of more of these compounds in uninfected parts. Right. And this is the whole thing of what we're sort of looking at, is ways to stimulate this systemic acquired resistance, as it's called, or induce mm-hmm. systemic resistance. Mm-hmm. How to prime the plant before infection actually occurs and stimulate all these defense responses so that plant is ready to go. Now, as Tom Shang, in one of his presentations, there's some great graphics, as you know, mm-hmm. what he's like. Yes. And he likened it to a sort of a castle mm-hmm. that was going to be under attack. Right. And induce systemic resistance, sort of make sure they, the full armory of defenses are there and the sentries are there primed up with coffee and caffeine so they're yeah. ready to, you know. <laughs> they're ready to go. Uh, ready to go, yeah. And this is what we're trying to do, looking at ways to sort of prime the plant, give it a sort of like a vaccine, in fact, mm-hmm. prior to infection. But it's the same, though, with abiotic stress as That's well. Right. Very similar yeah. responses. And, you know, there's work showing, you know, say perennial ryegrass that has been acclimatized to temperatures at, at zero. This brings out a response in the plant to this cold, low temperature. And these then, these same plants then are actually already primed to resist microdochium infection. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interaction, interplay between abiotic and biotic stress. So as I understood it too, that signaling you're talking about, okay, so the organism gets in there. When I was reading Tom Shang's work, jasmonic acid came up a lot. The hormone, which wasn't a hormone when I learned plant physiology, has been a hormone since I learned it back in the 80s. That is sort of the triggering hormone in some ways. And then there's this cascade of responses, right, as you describe Anything mm. from cell death and subrization or lignification mm. to creation of antimicrobials, essentially, or antioxidants. But what's really fascinating to me, John, and this is the good transition in some ways, there could be products like phosphite, like mineral oil, like copper that trigger plant defenses that could be distinctly different modes of action, right? Are there, is it your sense that these compounds might be triggering or having different sites of action, much like a fungicide would have a different site of action? Yeah, there's different pathways of response. As you mentioned, jasmonic acid, that's one. I think that's more related to what's called induced systemic resistance. Whereas with systemic acquired resistance, it's more of the salicylic acid pathway. So there's different pathways that the plant can utilize. So yeah, and different compounds, of course, 
I mean, some people have applied various types or forms of salicylic acid mm-hmm. or its chemical derivatives. And so this sort of, as I say, leads on to a stimulation of these defenses. You know, I've seen work from Penn State where they applied it to perennial rye and they had a very good reduction in one of the leaf spots. I'm not sure which one it was, but very good response there. And of course, salicylic acid now is appearing in a lot of products but, you know, as a lot more work is required to give it some sort of scientific basis right. at the moment, it's a bit right. you know, up in the air as That's to right. what rate you should apply or how does it work. Right. The key point is, I think, you know, whilst all these products that we mentioned, you know, like salicylic acid, copper, phosphate, they'll all have some effect. But when you start combining them into programs, I think that you will find very good uh, better responses mm. and of course another thing that you have to understand or be aware of that all these defenses there's no free lunches so right. the plants have to have the resources to produce these compounds and you know with a golf green grasses are often very much on a knife edge you know very low nutrition under stress so you have to be able to look at a, a sort of a balanced program that gives enough nutrients there that the plant can respond it's like us you know if we're suffering from malnutrition mm-hmm. we're very much more susceptible to disease mm-hmm. as well and of course the opposite effects, you know, if we're overfed, like uh, that's right. I'm here patting my stomach. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's all a matter of balance as well. Yes, and so what's what's interesting to me. I'm an agronomist, right? I did my yeah. PhD in weed science. I've picked up some working knowledge, working understanding of turfgrass pathology. I would by no means call myself a pathologist as the measure that I would hold like a Noel Jackson type of plant pathologist, a Pete Lanscu type of plant pathologist. So what I've noticed from my end is almost all the way we talk about these things, John, are around the pathogen experience, right? Acquired resistance, induced resistance, right? Everything, a lot of these products are tested on diseases to be resistant to biotic things. And in fact, um, and the one I left out when I was making a list was the Asabenzalar, right? That's Mm. in all the action products here in America. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows, ActiGuard product, Asabenzalar, has virtually no effect on the pathogen, when you use it by itself to control the disease, but it does stimulate the plant in a way that allows it to be more resistant. And that's, I think, why you're starting to see those things combined. You're seeing copper combined with mineral oil, copper combined with phosphites. So we've got these combinations out there, but let me go to your model species, right? You've been studying phosphites. You just published this great paper on uptake and translocation. And that's the other part of this deep dive that I want to do, Hmm. John, is talk a little bit about your recent publication where you looked at the uptake and translocation of foliar applied phosphites uh, in cool season turf grass. Now, this is really cool because this is the kind of work that's got to be needed to better understand. And then you've got another one we're going to get to where you actually look at the enhanced defense activation. But let's start out with uptake and translocation. What did you learn when you put these things on? Is the phosphorus going into the plant? Is it meeting the plant's phosphorus needs? Is it a potential for phosphorus contamination? Let's go through phosphites and the delivery of the actual phosphorus. Yeah, that was a great interesting area we looked at. It originated back during the PhD. We want to know what happened 
when you applied phosphate to the leaf. You know, everyone is using it as a foliar. And I asked the companies at the time, a good few years back, you know, what happens? And they, oh, well, um, we assume it's taken up the same as, you know, foliar applied phosphate. As I said, so I've given a talk in the faculty in, in the university oh, years ago, and I was saying, here's a tip for everyone, so all the students, you know, if you use the word assumed in your PhD thesis, you can assume you're going to be rewriting it. <laughs> so you have to know these things. So we wanted to find out what happened. So what we had to work out was a way to measure in the leaf and the rest of the plant the levels of phosphite. And obviously, you know, a normal foliar analysis wouldn't do that because that would destroy right. the level of phosphorus. Right. So we needed to be able to differentiate between phosphite and phosphate. So we found uh, a method from Australia back in 2010 uh, where they use a lot of phosphites on their native trees out there mm -hmm. to, you know, they inject it into the trunk. So they had this method and we adapted it then and it involves what's called high performance ion chromatography. So what we did, we applied it to our plants and we collected the leaf and the crowns and the roots over a time period of six weeks. And then we had to analyze all these with the levels. And what we found was that, you know, phosphite is taken in very rapidly into the leaf by 48 hours post-treatment. It was up near 5,000 ppm mm. in the leaf, you know, so a rapid uptake. We also found, which is very interesting, the fact that it does translocate from the leaf right down through the plant into the roots as well. So it's fully mobile within the plant, which is some mm. fungicide is not, of course. That's right. So a matter of fact, I just did some more of this work last week, in fact, up in Dublin City University for huh. another project I'm working on. So we found that it accumulates in the leaf. Over a six-week period, it gradually declined. And this was mostly due to the fact that the leaf was being removed by cutting. Right. It's quite stable in the leaf. It doesn't, right. you know, change or pick up an atom of oxygen and change to phosphate. So phosphate is mm. very stable within the leaf itself hmm. but it does is removed under normal mowing conditions but also an interesting point that you're sort of alluded to there what's any long-term effects would say is we found that you know over two years in the root zones we found an increase in phosphorus levels so the phosphate from the plant some of it's getting into the root zones continuously using foliar phosphates you're going to see an increase in the in the root zones over a long period so that is something to be aware of of course in a lynx course i mean in the states we have places where phosphorus fertilizer is is banned exactly yeah so that's a problem so you're saying that it takes a little bit of time it's stable in the plant it stays as the phosphate that's yes. that's that's very interesting. But not in the soil. But not in the soil. It does convert in the soil. So that's a very interesting and, quite frankly, a bit uh, alarming when I think about the amount of uh, phosphites that we use. And so let's talk a little bit now about how it mediates this enhanced response to microdochium in bentgrass, right? Maybe exactly what you learned about how this process works for phosphites. And really, in some ways, you have to clarify for me, John, how much of what's happening with microdochium is related to the direct effect on the pathogen versus how much is related to the plant's enhanced defense activation. So funny enough, I was asked this question yesterday. <laughs> By a really smart guy, I bet. It was actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to answer that right, there is a direct effect on microdochium by phosphate. And again, this is a paper we published in 2018, in fact, where we uh, did some in vitro work, where we 
grew the microdochium on plates, and this briefly this was amended by different concentrations of, of phosphorus acid and phosphite. So the phosphite, when it comes in contact with the microdochium, causes very much a big reduction in the growth of the pathogen actually affects is that whole morphology it causes stunting growth and this was one of the first things we thought that was causing this suppression of disease that the phosphate in the plant once the microdogium gets in and encounters it it takes it up in the plant and slows the growth of the microdogium and this has given the plant then more time to respond so that's one aspect of how it's suppressed mm. uh, the second one then is this induction of defenses again this is the paper we published earlier this mm-hmm. year and what we did here was we applied phosphate to various species uh, perennial rye and uh, poa and creeping bent and we measured when these defenses are nearly all phenolic compounds in other words the ring shaped uh, phenolic compounds and this covers a very wide range of processes in the plant you know from things like uv protection to lignification to salicylic acid and pathogenesis-related proteins. They're all phenolics. Uh, So one thing we did was we took samples over three years and we compared the level of these phenolic compounds in the untreated, sorry, the uninfected plants compared Mm -hmm. to the infected ones. And we found this significant increase. So this was sort of confirmed that this is related to defense. Mm -hmm. And then what we did, you know, briefly, we applied phosphates to various of species and we measured the level of phenolics as a response to this treatment. And we found a significant increase in the whole range of of these phenolic compounds Mm -hmm. following treatment with phosphate. We also looked at, uh, we measured hydrogen peroxide. Again, this is a key component of this, you know, first line of defense. This, right. uh, we actually measured the amount of hydrogen peroxide in the plant. We didn't get a very good result there, but then used various stains. And mm. we were able to visualize the generation of hydrogen peroxide at, at infection sites. Ah. We saw, you know, it seemed to be, now it's hard to measure visually, but we found that it was a, a more rapid generation of hydrogen peroxide. Right. As a defense following phosphate. And this was something that was generalized through many plant systems over the last 30 right. odd years. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a combination of uh, phosphate having a direct and an indirect effect on the, directly affecting the pathogen by interfering with its metabolism and then indirectly by stimulation of a whole range of different plants. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, antioxidants, right? Things that are. Yeah. Antioxidants able to consume free oxygen that doesn't damage the plant. And so, listen, let's come up for some oxygen now. We've done that really good deep dive. And let's wrap up with some advice for superintendents. Now, in the last few years, I don't think there's a company that doesn't sell a proprietary label phosphite. There are certainly the big players all produce phosphites. You can buy generic phosphites. You you name it, John. You come to the States, there's phosphites everywhere. That's right, yeah. What I want to see if you can help me understand is what's the advice you want to give superintendents when they're going out and they're visited by eight different sales service providers from their various distribution people that they do business with, and each one of them has a phosphite or two, how can they compare? Like, you know, if I want to buy propiconazole from Qualipro and then propiconazole from Syngenta, I'm looking at two different economic models. I might be looking at, I'm more comfortable with that formulation. I might be looking at cost per days of control. But a lot of times, a lot of people say, I'll just take the generic, much like we take generic medication and oftentimes Mm -hmm. don't think about it. 
But there's context in that world of fungicides and fertilizers. It doesn't feel like I can give any advice to guys who are trying to buy one of these 50,000 phosphites, much like (laughs) wedding agents. So what would you tell someone that they should start looking for to be sure their phosphites are offering them the advantages that they could be offering for the right amount of price, right? The cost benefit. Well, as a former superintendent, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've had <laughs> guys coming in to me and saying, this will turn your poa into fescue. It'll stop disease. <laughs> you know, it'll even make your coffee for you nearly. But uh, it's a sort of a thing, actually, the question that you're going to Harrogate BTME, aren't you, Frank? I am. And, you know, when we're done on this episode, we're bringing on Sammy Strutt and Deb Burnett oh, right. to promote the BTME. <laughs> so you're going to have a packed house, brother. Yeah. But one of the talks I'm doing, I think you're doing it as well, is the Young Greenkeepers Conference, where we mm-hmm. have some, like 20 minutes. And I was doing some sort of a talk there. And then someone in Biggest says, you know, you're doing this. So what I'm talking about is research. So what I'm going to be saying to the young guys in answer to your question, too, is if someone comes to your shed, your office selling stuff, always say, show me the data. Show me what research you have that supports your product, how it performs, not only by itself, but what sort of programs have you got that's going to not only you know help me reduce disease, but I also want to improve my turf quality. There's no point in killing off disease if my turf grass looks like the organic <laughs> matter from the back end of a sheep. You know? <laughs> so that's what I would say. Too many years as I was going through the, the job, you know, we had people coming in with just sales talk, sales talk all the time. It is changing. A lot more people, a lot more companies now are really into these proper research programs. They're funding it. They're producing good data. So yeah. that's what I would say. Show me the data. Show me how your product works in the field. Okay. And that's it. Yeah. And then what about phosphites? How do I know one is better than another beyond just the data? Can I look at the potassium level? Should I look at the percent active ingredient? Should I look at the rate? Yeah. Well, one thing people always often ask me is how come, you know, product A is being applied to 10 liters per hectare or whatever it is you say in the States. <laughs> yeah. Ounces per thousand. Yeah, don't, 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 I know don't it's ridiculous, on that. but don't we do start it. Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, you know, one is a 10 liters per hectare. The other is a 20 liters. When you, how, you know, surely the one was I look at the actual PO3, the phosphate content, and you look for the actual percentage of that and work it out from that. You know, it's like liquid, you know, applying a liquid nitrogen, a foliar nitrogen. They all have different percentage content. So what I would say with phosphate is you want to aim for, I'm going to go metric here again. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, 3.5 grams per square meter of actual phosphate is the recommended rate. So that's the rate to get you the minimum effect of the phosphates. Yes, yeah, that's, the, that's what we found. Uh, you know, Clint uses the same rates during his research trials as well. Mm-hmm. There's no point in going any more than that, but that's what you want to look at. It's interesting to me, many providers obfuscate is the fancy word, you know, the rates and the amounts, right? And it might be inexpensive, but you're using it at a higher rate to get the same effect. So I think it is worthwhile to give that advice to look at the actual amount of exactly PO3 yeah. that you're delivering because that's the active ingredient. Yes. Yeah. And the very first trials I did back in 2008... We looked at that rate, that 3.5, 3.6 grams, but we also went to one and a half and doubled the rate. 
and we got no advantage whatsoever. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't go lower, actually. I'm not sure how low you can go. <laughs> okay. But that's something that should be looked at as well. And as you know, when you're doing research, there's always maybe 10 more questions that come up every time you look at an answer. So You know what we call that? We call that job security in, 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 this, in academics, right? <laughs> well, I'm supposed to be retired, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I don't think I've laughed as much on a podcast that we've done. Sometimes they're serious. Sometimes they're complete nerdy deep dives with you. It's the joy of a good Irish laugh. And thanks again. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. And I will see you in Harrogate at the BTME 2023. Yes. You know, my favorite part of that town is the Turkish baths. Have you been in the Turkish baths? You know what? I've been there for years, and I've never been in the Turkish baths. They're glorious. Let's give them a try this year. Oh, good. We'll we'll get a single malt and head over after that. (laughs) (laughs) John, thanks a lot. My best to Mary for the holiday. Okay, thanks, Frank. Talk to you soon. Take care now. Bye now. to Dr. John Dempsey. And before we get to our conversation with Sammy Strutt and Deb Burnett of Biga about the BTME, I'm sure you will see our partners at Dryject at the BTME trade show promoting sand injection as an efficient means of getting the most out of every sand application with less sand in the mower bucket. For more information about how to get the most out of your sand applications, contact your local Dryject services representative or visit them at dryject.com. Okay, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm taking this unique opportunity in this episode since I spoke to an Irishman, and I will say I did it without an interpreter. He's actually pretty easy to understand for a good, solid Irishman, and I will see Dr. Dempsey at the BTME conference in 2023 in Harrogate. This part of our episode is an opportunity to promote that conference. I'm going. It's one I've always really liked uh, attending. I know worldwide it's a it's a well-attended conference. Many people are making it a point of destination. And I think over the years uh, it's expanded. And I'm joined today by Sammy Strutt, the Chief Operating Officer of BIGA, and Deb Burnett, the learning and development executive in charge with educational component of the conference called Continue to Learn. Sammy, thanks for taking the time to join me. Hey, great to join you, Frank. I know you a long time and you were in a previous role to the one you're in now that sounds like it happened uh, during the pandemic, at least while we've been locked down and not able to see each other. So why don't we just take a second, talk a little bit about uh, your role in Bigger and how that's changed and how uh, the BTME 2023 is shaping up. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I've been with Bigger for nearly 30 years, which is amazing. We have been running a trade show in Harrogate since the late 80s running along education alongside a trade show. And uh, I've been involved with the education side of that program, the majority of my career with Bigger. Approximately the last 15 years, it's been my baby. It's turned into a rather stroppy teenager now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've handed it over to the very capable hands of Deb Burnett who is now taking on the role of uh, leading the Continue to Learn program. So it's quite an event. It is. And so let's talk about your end of the deal now. Tell me a little bit about the trade show component of BTME. 
So the trade show, we have six exhibition halls spread over Harrogate Convention Centre, right in the centre of Harrogate, which is a conference town in the north of England. The trade show is free to attend. So anybody that works within the industry, greenkeeping or sports turf, can attend the trade exhibition by just showing up on the day or by pre-registering. And within the trade show, we have several feature areas, including a seminar theatre, which includes 10 and a half hours of free education across the three days of our exhibition. And our feature areas include a sustainability zone, a well-being area. We're also this year going to have an autonomous machinery demo area, which we're very excited about. And we have an education hub as well, if I didn't already say that. So it's quite a show. We have about five and a half to 6,000 attendees come into the north of England. It's an amazing place to be the third week of January. It is a highlight of everybody's calendar. We attend a lot of events this time of the year and everybody's parting words are always, I'll see you at BTME. So we would really love to be welcoming guests from around the world, which we do. We'd like to see more of them. So, Sammy, how has the trade show changed over the years? Oh, it's got much, much bigger. I think that's the key thing. We have a really wide range of exhibitors that come in. We have a really wide range of people that attend it, from people that are just starting out in their career, right up to those that are very, very well known in the industry at the very top of their game. We have all the guys from the top clubs, as you would expect, St. Andrews, Sunningdale, Wentworth, Queenwood, Carnoustie, you name it, we've got them there. And it's just an amazing place to network and catch up with people. We all know how brilliant the greenkeeping industry is, how welcoming it is to everybody. And we really see it when we bring in the younger people and we're able to put them in the same room as a real senior internationally recognized course manager. And they sit and chat with each other and remind these younger ones that they have once been them and their career can take them to be sitting in that seat, having the same conversation in 15, 20 years' time with another young person. So it's such a unique event in that it spans the entire industry. It seems that you're bucking the trend here, Sammy. I think if you asked Americans about the trade show, they'd tell you it's scaled down uh, over the years. It's got to be a, a measure of your success that you've been able to grow that part of the show. Yeah, I think so. It's really recognized as the only place to be in January. And if you're there, you're really serious about your career in greenkeeping and what it means to you. And, you know, just the joy of of getting together. I think, you know, we talk regularly about the role of greenkeepers and how they are small teams. And often the further up the career Mm -hmm. ladder that you go, the more isolated you become. And BTME really does provide that environment where people can get together and chat and discuss what's going on with them and support each other, discuss the events that are happening to them, if they're doing any renovation work, how they get around things. It's an industry Mm -hmm. where, as we know, everybody shares. If they learn something, they share it with everybody. They tell everybody. And it's a great way to bolster um, people going into a new season It's more than a trade show. It's a society event within our industry that people want to come to because they can 
feel the benefit that it gives to them as an individual and to their team and the boost that it starts the season and it gets them going. They have some education, they get to network with their peers and they get to talk to the exhibitors who are crucially important to this. Looking at the new innovations and machinery, they're talking about the research and development that's happening. All of this just creates this atmosphere of sharing, uh, sharing knowledge and skills with each other. It's, I think it's unique. Well, thanks for giving me the easy transition to your colleague, Deb Burnett, who's been at this a little bit. The Continuing Professional Development Scheme, the Future Turf Managers Initiative, Deb, the Toro Student Greenkeeper of the Year, and of course, what we're talking about today, the Continue to Learn program. So let's give you a chance to do some bragging about this, (laughs) what did she call it, a gruffy teenager or something, the BTME? (laughs) I think Sammy's referring to our lovely program as a stroppy teenager. It's certainly grown since Sammy first started doing it, that's for sure. And taking the program over from Sammy, I've certainly got some big shoes to fill, which I'm constantly reminded of by everybody I speak to. <laughs> so no pressure. Continue to learn. I am biased, but it is a great educational event for greenkeepers and the greenkeeping industry. The education is made up from classes, which are three to six hours long in length and tend to concentrate solely on one topic. We have free educational seminars, which are 45 minutes in length, and they're on the hour every hour on the Tuesday and Wednesday of the trade show. And then we also have two different conference streams happening. We have a two-day conference which consists of 40 to 60 minute educational sessions on a variety of topics. We've also got a Young Greenkeepers Conference, which is aimed at people who are new to the industry, whether they be young or old, and want to get a taste of education. That's looking to be a really good event. You've got you talking about volunteering, Frank, which will be brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Dr. John Dempsey, who you've just been speaking to, talking about agronomy and a range of other speakers. That's hopefully going to be a really good event as well. I can tell you, it's really great that you offer a variety of different ways to learn it. You can sit down for 45 minutes. You can sit down for a couple of hours. You can sit down for a whole day. Paul McCormick, my good close friend, the mindful superintendent, and I will be doing a mindfulness workshop for an entire day on Sunday. And I'm already looking forward to having the entire day on a Sunday in the north of England with one of my favorite people in in the whole world and, uh, you know, make it part of my job. So I know you have, you know, a lot of exciting people coming from all around, but why don't you go through a couple of the highlights of the speakers that you're really hoping that people take the time to come and see? I mean, they can see a dope like me anytime. (laughs) I'm thinking that you have a lot of interesting people from Europe that maybe these guys don't hear from very often. We do. We've got people coming from all over the world to speak. We've actually got 86 speakers in total who will be delivering 225 hours of education over the four days. Education is on a variety of topics from agronomy, mental health and well-being and the conference sessions. We've got machinery talks as well. Uh, There's obviously a good self that's coming to do quite a lot of sessions for us. We've got Stan Koska and Mike Vedanza coming over from the US, as well as Zach Nicoludis from the USGA. Uh, we've got Glenn Kirby, who's a technical manager at Syngenta. He's very well known in the UK, predominantly for talking about chafer grubs and leather jackets at the moment, ah. but he'll be talking about taking the heat out of summer diseases. So that should be a good session. Now, listen, I want to ask you specifically two things. 
One is there seems to be a guy with a last name I recognize from somebody in this call with us today that I think he's coming back over from the pond. There is indeed, yes. I want to talk a little bit about mental health and well-being. You know, obviously, I mean, I'm doing something with Paul. This is getting more popular. I know uh, the Australian superintendents are, are doing a lot of work in this area. In fact, I think they had a tragedy of, you know, a superintendent committing suicide recently. So this is very serious business. It's it's something that's hit our industry pretty hard. And it looks like it's become a priority uh, for you guys in in this year's session. It really has. It's a subject that's very close to my heart and to Bigger's heart as well. We too in the UK, we unfortunately lose greenkeepers and course managers to suicide far too often for our liking. It's really bad. So the theme throughout Continue to Learn this time, I've tried to include a lot of well-being and mental health sessions. In this day and age, men don't always find it as easy to talk about the feelings and what's going on as women, unfortunately. Mm. But it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to sit with your buddies and have a beer and say, you know, I'm not okay, I need a little bit of help. So by introducing the different classes and conference sessions on well-being and mental health, We're really hoping that we'll actually encourage people to talk more about their well-being and make sure that they're okay. So we've got the lovely session with yourself on Sunday, which should be brilliant. We've got a club manager talking about mental well-being. We've got a gentleman from Mental Health First Aid England doing a half-day class as well. So hopefully these will be well attended and the greenkeepers will get a lot out of them. Okay, so let's make sure everybody knows how to get information if they're ready to make plans to go. I I believe the uh, URL is uh, btme.org.uk, and you can just, I found it by Googling BTME 2023, comes right up. So that means your SEO is working and looks like everything's pretty easy to follow. I was uh, preparing for our conversation, going through the website. I even learned a little bit more about Bigger. Over the years, I think as people have had to make choices about where they want to spend their education dollars, there is a bit of complacency, I think, going on in the States about the golf industry show. And I think BTME has offered a really exciting alternative for places to spend your education dollar. And, you know, for those of us on the East Coast, you know, it's not that hard to get there. It might be a a little bit of a change in uh, time zones, but really not a very long flight uh, at all to get there and and pretty reasonable once we get there. Right, guys? Uh, Sammy, pretty reasonable to stay in Harrogate and accommodations are generally fairly reasonable. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a a really wide range of accommodation available from, you know, five star hotels to Airbnbs and everything in between. So um, it's everything. Once you get to Harrogate, everything's within walking distance um, of the exhibition centre. All the bars and restaurants are right there. The the exhibition centre is right in the centre of of Harrogate. So ever so easy. Including Um, my... Including your favourite... Are you going to say your favourite pub? I don't have a favourite pub. Any pub will do. Uh, (laughs) But I do have a fondness for the Turkish baths. Ah, yes, Harrogate's Turkish Baths. So you know what Harrogate is really famous for? It's the place where Agatha Christie ran away to when she disappeared. She was found in Harrogate at the Old Swan Hotel. No kidding. And uh, she went there to hide away and go to the Turkish Baths. 
So I'm with you, Frank. The Turkish baths are amazing <laughs> and must do for uh, for anybody coming into town. But we've got great transport links. There's airports and you can fly into London. You can fly into Manchester. You can fly into Leeds Bradford Airport. There's trains that come straight into Harrogate from the majority of the airports and a bus straight in from uh, Leeds Bradford Airport coming through Amsterdam. You're right there. But we can help you. Anybody that has any interest in attending, we can certainly help direct people towards the best way to get to Harrogate. And we can also advise on pubs and restaurants as well. (laughs) We're well versed. (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget, it's the trade show attendance is completely free. And there's free education available as well as a paid education. So it's really worth coming. You guys are great. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I can't wait to get over there and enjoy the wonderful North of England hospitality. It's so great for you to take the time to join me. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Happy holidays. Lovely. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, same to you, Frank. Look forward to seeing you in January. Big thanks to Dr. John Dempsey, as well as Sammy Strutt and Deb Burnett for joining me on this Euro episode of Frankly Speaking, our last episode for 2022. And it's time to thank our great and supporting sponsors from DryJack, The Plant Food Co., and Frost Spray Technologies. It has been a great joy to be partnering with them on this season of Frankly Speaking. And you can find this entire season on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios by Nate Richardson, theme music by my son, Tucker Rossi, artwork and avatar by my daughter, Nicole Rossi, executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining me.